There are uh, many passages within the Bible that outline the saving death of Jesus on the cross. There are numerous passages in the Old Testament that prophesy about Christ and point to the upcoming cross. <clears throat> I think of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that are so detailed in their description and explanation of the saving death of Christ upon the cross hundreds of years before he was born. It bears extraordinary testimony to the power of our Lord. In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In each Gospel, they build to the last week of Jesus' life and spend a considerable amount of time outlining those events, specifically the saving death of Jesus on the cross and all the circumstances that surrounded it. And as we continue into the New Testament, we get to the epistles. They give us rich theological explanation of the efficacy of that saving death. There are great chapters in the epistles that we find there which profile and explain Calvary. Romans 3, Romans chapter 5 that we talk about at Wednesday night Bible study. Hebrews chapter 9, Galatians chapter 3 to name a few. They all give us substance and doctrine, definition and clarity regarding the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. Last week, we started the passage on the Good Shepherd. And, and Jake, thank you again for setting the stage for us today with a children's sermon. <clears throat> just, just real quickly, the Sunday before Rick left, he went into his office and Jake was sitting in his chair. And so Rick told Jake that, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. And Jake just kind of lifted his hand and said, don't worry, I got it covered. <clears throat> Well, you covered the children's sermon wonderfully and led us right into these, these great verses in John chapter 10 that are special. In these verses, <clears throat> we have Jesus' own commentary on his own death. And nowhere else in the Gospels do we find an explanation that's this deep from Christ himself regarding his death. As noted last week, in these verses, Jesus is both the speaker and he's the subject. Jesus is going to be preaching Christ and Christ crucified his death upon the cross for our sins. So, why are these verses important today? Why should you even pay attention this morning? Why should these verses not go in one ear and out the other, but settle in our hearts, yours and mine, this morning? The reason is because Jesus himself is going to give us the greatest explanation of his death that we find in the Gospels regarding who he is, what he came to do, and why he came to do it. Let's reread this entire passage of Scripture concerning the Good Shepherd. And today we're going to unpack the middle portion. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, we read... <clears throat> That's okay because it's Theo, so we're good. <clears throat> In John chapter 10, 11 through 18, we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. 
even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. As a quick review, last Sunday we primarily looked at verse 11, and we noted a couple major points. First, the exclusive claim of Jesus in this statement, I am the good shepherd. This is the fourth of the I am statements that we find in the book of John. And as he makes this claim, Jesus is asserting that he is God because only God can shepherd his people. The Lord is my shepherd, said David, I shall not want. No man can do this. No man can meet all of our needs, physical, emotional, spiritual Only God can meet all of our needs. Jesus has come to guide us, to lead us, to protect us, to save us. Then we looked at the excellent character of the good shepherd. He begins to give us reasons why he is the good shepherd. And he says that he will lay down his life. He will die for the sheep. He gave himself unto death on the cross to save us from judgment to come. To save us. From the wages of our own sin, which is death. To deliver us from the final judgment on the last day. What a, what a beautiful, what a glorious death on the cross it was. I mean, this goes, this goes way beyond emotion or sentimental heart tuggings of one who suffered physical pain and physical hardship on the cross. There were thousands who died on Roman crosses. There was only one who laid his life down for the sheep. There was only one who's laid his life down so those who believe in him will not perish. There is only one who bore our sins. You bet he's the good shepherd. No other shepherd has ever saved us from our sins. The second reason he's the good shepherd, reason number one was that he dies for his sheep, unlike the hirelings who abandon the flock. The second reason is is that Jesus loves his sheep. And today we're going to go a little deeper. We're going to plunge into the motive behind the cross. Jesus loves the sheep and dies for them. It would be possible, I guess, to die for somebody that you really didn't love, that you really didn't care for. Maybe you would be forced to do so. But now Jesus tells us not only has he died for the sheep, but he loves them. He knows his sheep. He died for them personally. Let's, let's start with verse 14 this morning. I am the good shepherd. Let's just pause there for a minute. This is obviously a repetition of what we saw in verse 11, and intentionally so. He's underscoring the, the central theme of this entire passage. I am the good shepherd. I mean, this is worthy to be repeated. This is the backbone upon which everything else hangs. He repeats it. He declares it to the false teachers of the day who are not like him. I am the good shepherd. And he says, and I know my own. The word and there is pretty important. The word and there connects the two. 
I am the good shepherd and I know my own. And this word to know is often used synonymously throughout the Bible with the word love. He is saying, I love my own. The word know is more than an awareness of facts, like I know Springfield's the capital of Illinois, or I know one plus one plus one is three. He is saying this word know marks a loving relationship with intimate knowledge of another person. It means to be intimately acquainted with another person. To know another person in the context of a relationship with overflowing love. It's also used at times in the Bible synonymously to describe a husband and a wife and how they love each other in the most intimate way. When Jesus is saying, I know my own, Jesus is saying that I have this depth of love and this height of affection for those that I'm going to lay down my life for and that I will die for. In Genesis 4.1 we read, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. The Hebrew word here used here is yada, and it means to know. And the translators translated that, now the man knew, or now the man had relations with his wife Eve. Intimate. You get the point. It's family Sunday. I'm going to move on. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's talking to Israel. And when he says, you only have I known, surely God knows of other countries, right? Surely God knows of other families on the earth. So what's he saying? He's restating his unique love relationship that he had with Israel. He knows them. He loves them intimately, deeply. So... Valentine's Day is right around the corner, right? And I know that many of the guys here, Jason, we've talked before, I think Scott and, and Paul and Jeff, we're all right in the middle of, of writing our sentimental, our heartfelt love poems to our wives that on Valentine's Day we get down on our knee and we present to. No, I, I don't know if, if the other guys are doing it. I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to do it. Um, but... <laughs> But by, but by understanding this phrase, and I know my own, what it means, Jesus is using very tender language, very loving language here, very Valentine's Day-ish type of language. It's language that you would use for your sweetheart. It's language that, that shows that we are the object of His endearing love. We are His own. He had this love for us when He went to the cross and He died for us. And the love of God is perfect. It's beyond our comprehension. It's eternal. It's eternal love that's personal, relational, unconditional. What a special love He has for us. In Ephesians 5.2, we read, Paul writes, and walk in love, 
just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. You know, when I looked up some verses about this motivation behind the Good Shepherd and his love for us, what I noticed is what they were all presented in the past tense. They all pointed backwards to the greatest expression, to the greatest pinnacle expression of his great love for us when he laid down his life for us. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, past tense, and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, past tense, and gave himself up for her? I mean, certainly there's an act. There's a, there's a daily, current daily love for us that Jesus has. But as an example of that love, Scripture points back to the cross. I mean, how can anybody say, I don't really know if Jesus loves me? I mean, does he love you? He died for you on the cross. That's what the scripture is pointing back to. The knowledge of Christ has of his sheep. I love my own. I know my own. This is a special type of love he has for us. By the way, of an example, I remember when Otto or Olivia were a little bit older than Theo. And Tina and I would take them to the nursery, obviously, and then come in here and hear the sermon. And then we would go back and pick them up. And we'd pick them up amongst the other babies and the other kids of the nursery. And, and, and I knew each one of them. You know, I was familiar with each one of those kids. But there was only one that I was going to pick up that I really loved. You know, there was only one that when that diaper was just extremely messy, I would change it. <clears throat> I mean, other babies I'd give back to their parents, right? There's only one that I would change. There was only one baby in there that I would get up night after night after night and take care of him. There was only one baby in there that I would give anything, I mean sacrifice anything for their well-being. I had a, I had a general love for the others, you know, but the love I had for my own was different. It was deeper. It was more intimate than generally loving their nursery friends and just the same way he says, I know my own. I love my own. He loves the sheep. Jeremiah 1.5, God said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This love is one we can't understand. That, that before we came into the world, he knew us and was already intimately acquainted with with us. What an awesome privilege it is to be known by the Good Shepherd. To be intimately known, to be lovingly known, to be personally known by the Shepherd. Now we, go, we move on into verse 14, and what we see is our response. In verse 14, we read, I'm the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. This is like an unbreakable chain. And this refers to our response to him. At a moment in time, at the moment of our conversion, we came to know him. 
There was a time in your life when you did not know him. The good shepherd knew you. You did not know him. But at your conversion, when we accepted him as our Lord and Savior of our life, we began this process of knowing him. This is a relationship. He loves us. He proved he loves us. And that starts swelling in our heart and it just makes us want to love him back even more. It's not one-sided. A relationship obviously works best when both parties are loving each other. If not, it usually doesn't work out. And this isn't an isolated truth tucked away here. Let's look at some supporting scriptures that this is very prevalent throughout the scriptures. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know Jesus Christ. It is to have a personal relationship with him. What a difference than mere religion, right? What a difference than an outward religion that's full of rituals, that's full of routine, you know, sitting in a building. Now, that's not knowing God. That's going through the motions. Christianity is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when you get to know him intimately. Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes that the preaching and teaching of the word of God has been given to us, starting in 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God. That's the purpose of biblical preaching and teaching. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. It's a means to an end. The end is that we might know him, have knowledge of him. Intimately, personally, firsthand knowledge of Christ. Paul understood this. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul writes again, More than that, I count all things to be lost, bankrupt, in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness, excuse me, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That I may know him. I pray that that's our desire also. That we want to grow closer and deeper to knowing Christ personally, intimately. That he becomes more and more precious and desirable every day. That we give him our heart and our mind, and our soul, and our strength, our whole being out of love. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's not about the rules. The laws are still in effect, and they help us know Christ. They point us to Christ. To know Him 
deeper and more intimately. The question for us this morning is this. Jesus knows his own. How deep is that knowledge? How well does he know you? Well, in verse 15, he gives us a comparison and it's shocking. It's shockingly wonderful. Okay, this is why I hope we've chosen to gather here on Sunday morning where Rick faithfully breaks down some scripture for us every Sunday morning. When I dug into this a little bit deeper, it just amazed me. I mean, if this doesn't excite you, then reach down and check, check your pulse. Okay? Or if this doesn't excite you, then maybe you should go find a church that has cool light shows and lasers to entertain you. Because this is the heart of the message right here. In John 10, 14, 15, he says, let's get a running start. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as he's making a comparison, even as the father knows me and I know the father. That is an extraordinary statement, my good friends. Let's let's slow down and think about that statement. The depth of which Jesus knows the Father and the Father knows Jesus parallels to the depth of knowledge Christ has of me? What a comparison. His knowledge of me is perfect. His love for us is perfect. Our knowledge of him is limited, especially here on earth. Nevertheless, he knows us to the same degree as he knows the Father. How well does he know the Father? Well, in John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, was Jesus, and the Word was with God. So, in in the very beginning, this is a face-to-face relationship the Father and the Son shared throughout all eternity past. They've been pouring out their mutual love, their mutual affection for each other from the very beginning. And that's what he compared to how he knows his sheep. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Son was in the bosom of the Father for all eternity past. That's how well he knows the Father. You get a picture of him putting his head you know, in, upon one's chest. That's what it means to put your head in the bosom and you can hear their heartbeat. You can hear him breathe. That's close. That's close. And he says, this is how I know my sheep. Listen, Jesus is not far away and distant from us. He's not just the finish line at the end of the race. He's running with us. He is inside of us. We are one with him and he is one with us as he is one with the Father. This is why he's the good shepherd. It's one thing to lay your life down, but he lays his life down for us, his sheep, and he does so out of the depths of his love, out of concern, out of extreme care for his sheep. I know my own, and my own know me, even as I know the Father, and the Father knows me. What a triangle. What a triangular love relationship. And at the, verse of fifth, at the end of verse 15, after he finishes stating his extreme care and love and devotion for his sheep, he says, and 
I lay down my life for the sheep. What? Again, this poetic way that he describes his death, how he willingly, freely, intentionally gives himself up for us. How could we not love him more after realizing the depth of this love that he has for us as sheep? And finally, our third point is that he gathers. Jesus gathers as the good shepherd. He leaves none of his sheep behind in a canyon. Or he leaves none of his sheep behind in a wilderness to get, to get devoured alone. No, he doesn't do that. He gathers his sheep together. He brings them into his fold. In verse 16, we read, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them. I, not I may be or I might. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. What's this I have sheep outside of this fold? What's he talking about there? What does that mean? Well, if you consider the options, one option seems to fit best. And it's the sheepfold of Judaism. Israel is often portrayed in the Old Testament as the sheep and God is their shepherd. So this fold he's talking about is Israel. And he says, I have sheep outside of this fold that I must bring in outside of the confines of the nation of Israel. They will hear my voice and they will be one flock with one shepherd. Let's make this personal. Okay, this is you. All right. I mean, it doesn't get much more personal than that, does it? We're all Gentiles, are we not? Is there an Orthodox Jew in the room today? No. I mean, this is us. This is us. And he is going to bring us into the fold of his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy into his flock. In Jesus' flock, his sheep are not separated like Jews over here and Gentiles over there. Or they're not separated like Methodists over here, Baptists there. Let's put the charismatics over there and the Lutherans here and and we'll put the Catholics right in the middle. No, we don't read any of that. Here, he mentions one flock with one shepherd. That's what the Good Shepherd accomplished for us. Out of this deep love, he brought us back into his fold, into his eternal care, into his protection. Let me conclude by just stating this. We have to know that by examining this passage and others, that we are in an intimate, a marriage type of relationship here with our good shepherd. We play a role in that relationship like you do any other earthly relationship, right? We play a role. We need to spend time with the one we love, with our good shepherd. We need to walk together with Him. Talk together with Him. Get in the Word of God together with Him. Serve other people together with Him. He is inside of us. With us every step of the way. When Tina and I were dating, we couldn't wait to spend time together. I mean, I would literally, I would look so forward to it. I would count down the days. I mean, I would get to the point where I'd be counting down the hours of when I could see Tina again. Have you lost your first love for Christ? Like the picture he gives us in the book of Revelation. 
is Jesus doing all the loving? You know, is it a one-sided relationship? If so, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can change that. We can leave here today marveling at the motive here behind the Good Shepherd laying down His life. We can be in unspeakable awe of what our Heavenly Father was willing to do to reconcile us back to Him. And right now, we can joyfully, we can gladly sing of the cross, which leads to our eternal home, to the one that we love and cherish. Let's stand and let's sing, The Way of the Cross Leads Home.